We will be resuming our series in the one another's this morning. So please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 15, and we'll be looking at verses uh, 7 through 13, verses 7 through 13. The Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for allowing for us to gather together through this online means. We're grateful to you that even though we may be separated from one another uh, physically, that we can still worship together virtually. We pray, O Lord, that you would use your word to minister to our hearts this morning, to communicate to us what you want us to know about yourself, how you want us to live in response. We pray that, Father, you would be glorified, that you would give us soft hearts, that you would give us ears to hear so that we might live out your truth in our lives. Thank you, Father, for the stability that your word brings. We pray that, Lord, you would be glorified as we hear and as we apply your word in our lives. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. No matter where you get your news from these days, it always seems like there is an unusual amount of tension and conflict in our world. Whether the issue be the 2020 presidential election, the Black Lives Matter movement, the coronavirus, or other issues, there does not seem to be a subject that people can reasonably talk about that doesn't lead to some source of conflict. Now, sure, there will be plenty of people who will agree with us on certain issues, but there will also be many people who will not agree with us. And perhaps this is the result of being sheltered in place for five months. Perhaps this is the result of restlessness or frustration. Perhaps this is how it has always been. But our circumstances have all come together to highlight just how divided We've always been. Because of the sin nature of man, we are all prone to this sinful kind of conflict. This conflict, as many of you who pay attention to the news will know, is not new. We've seen this before. And sure, some of the people might be new. Some of the the situations might be new. some Some of the ideology might have shifted. But at the end of the day, none of the conflict is new because what it really boils down to simplistically is sinners acting like sinners towards 
one another. We should never be surprised when sinners choose to act like sinners. And what might catch us by surprise, though, is when fellow Christians are not exactly living in a way that honors Christ. Yes, we have a sin nature too. But since we've been saved by God from our sins, we should, and that is the key word, should, live like those who've been delivered from our sins. Yet, being delivered from our sins does not mean that we will have perfect unity in everything. At least, we won't have that kind of unity until we get to heaven. We'll still have conflicts here in this life. But what does that mean for the church? Have we failed in our mission if we are not unified? How should a church which has divisions behave? Should we disband and start new churches with those who are more like-minded with us? Or does God leave us with another plan, a better way? Well, this morning, what we will find in our study is that God's design for His church is not for us to be divided but for his people to accept one another. And while that might be difficult for people who are at odds to hear at this moment, Paul provides us with three motivations to accept one another in Christ despite our differences. Three motivations to accept one another in Christ despite our differences. Now, that first motivation to accept one another is that Christ exemplifies our acceptance. Christ exemplifies our acceptance. Verse 7, Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Now, in case you forgot or um, are just joining us, Paul has been addressing tension that has arisen in the church in Romans 14 and in Romans 15. The issue at hand was whether Christians were exempt from observing the dietary laws and the festival days and the Sabbath um, in order to achieve righteousness, in order to maintain righteousness. Now, there were some who understood that you did not need to do that. That was the Gentiles. They were the so-called stronger believers. They understood that faith in Jesus Christ alone achieved our righteousness. While the Jews, the Jewish Christians, these were the so-called weaker believers. They struggled with the idea that faith alone in Christ was enough. They thought that they had to maintain their, their righteousness through obedience of the law, or certain aspects of the law anyway. Now, Paul, he commands the stronger believers not to judge those who didn't agree with them. And he also called these stronger believers to temporarily lay aside some of their rights, their rights to eat certain foods uh, or uh, whatnot, so that they might build up those with incorrect views of righteousness with right doctrine. Now here, in verse 7 of chapter 15, Paul makes it very clear that even though he's been instructing the stronger believers uh, at this time uh, for, for a, a long long time, that the weaker believers are not exempt from instruction either when it comes to these issues of conscience and liberty. Now, since the goal of the church is to glorify God together, 
as a singular whole, Paul commands the believers, both strong and weak, to accept one another. Now, our translations don't emphasize this, but Paul's command is to both groups. He, he is essentially saying, therefore, you all accept one another. And not just the strong, not, not just the weak, but all of you accept one another. And the idea of accepting one another is, as the ESV translated, translates it, to welcome one another, to welcome one another. And so even if we have differences with other Christians, even if we have conflict with other Christians, we are to welcome them or receive them into our fellowship and friendship. Now, we all tend to be selective about who we're going to reach out to or speak to under normal circumstances when we're able to meet as a church. After all, there are a lot of people here at this church, and there isn't enough time to speak to everyone. So we're naturally selective. But, but, when we're at odds with one another, when we have conflict with someone else, or a difficult interaction with another person, isn't it easier? Isn't it easier for us to choose willingly not to interact with that person? To limit the amount of time that we spend with that person. Maybe we'll give them a handshake, but that's about it. Maybe we'll ask them some general small talk questions. How are you doing? Okay, great. Thanks. And then we move on. And when we have conflict with other people, when we have disagreements with other people, we've been taught that it's polite for us to be cordial with them. But we don't actually think that we have to welcome them into our friendship and fellowship. But Paul's command, it helps us understand that no matter what our personal preferences might be, no matter how troublesome it might be to temporarily lay aside our rights or to put aside any conflict or sin that's, that's there, that we who have been bought by the blood of Christ are to welcome one another, to accept them willingly and joyfully. Why? Because Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Paul holds Jesus up to us and he reminds us that Jesus accepted us. Therefore, we ought to accept one another. Christ's acceptance of us, his welcoming of us, into his fellowship and friendship was done while we were still his enemies. Romans 5 reminds us that we couldn't help ourselves. We were helpless. We were undeserving of God's kindness towards us. But because God loved us, Christ died for us and gave us a way to be made right with God. And so the acceptance that Christ has given us as he has adopted us into his family, is the same type of acceptance that we are called to extend towards one another. Our motivation to extend acceptance, to extend welcome to those we may not agree with, to those that we have uh, conflict with, to those who we have different, differing preferences uh, over, 
right, is, is the same as Christ's motivation. We want to, to extend that because Christ extended that to us. And we want to do so to the glory of God, just as Christ did so to the glory of God. Now, that might lead you to wonder, how does our acceptance of one another, despite our differences, bring glory to God? Well, let's look at verses 8 to 9a. Paul says, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Now, Paul tells his readers what they already know to be true, and in fact, you already know this to be true. By obeying God and coming to earth to bring salvation to the Jews, who are here labeled as uh, the circumcision, Jesus became a servant for them, not only in his death, but also in his resurrection. He continues to serve his people at, at this time because he's our, he is our Messiah. Right? He's the deliverer for all of those Jewish people who choose to repent of their sins and believe in him. And not just the Jewish people, but the Gentiles who come alongside and share in the promises. But more on that a little later. Now, this phrase, on behalf of the truth of God, he became a servant on behalf of the truth of God. It can also be understood as in order to show that God is faithful or in order to show God's truthfulness. Jesus Christ became a servant to the Jews to show the faithfulness of God, to confirm that God has, in fact, kept his promises to the fathers. Now, the fathers, of course, are the patriarchs. They're uh, the, the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. They're Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Genesis 12, in Genesis 22, and in Genesis 35, God made promises to these men, promising that he would give them a land, he would give them descendants, and he would give them a kingdom. And one of the benefits... Uh, of the one of the benefits that result from the establishment of the kingdom is that through these men, the families of the earth, that is all the Gentiles, everyone who's not a Jew, will be blessed. Jesus' first coming, his life and his death and his resurrection proved that God keeps his promises, that God is truthful when he speaks. And now it may have taken longer than certain people may have thought or wanted, but God timed Jesus' coming perfectly so that the good news of the gospel could go to all the earth. Now, as Paul had noticed, pre- noted previously in Romans 11, Jesus' rejection by the Jews was all part of God's salvation plan. God planned for the Jews to reject Jesus so that the gospel would go forth to the Gentiles. And once the gospel went forth to the Gentiles, those Jews who were jealous for God, they would see their need for the gospel. They would want to come back to God. And so Gentiles, that's all of us who are not Jewish, we have reason to glorify God for his mercy. If God was not truthful, if he did not send his son to confirm the promises and also extend the blessings of those, uh, of those promises to us, then we would still all be lost in our sins. 
And so we too, we too are thankful that Jesus came to prove God's faithfulness. Because without his faithfulness to the promises of, uh, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we would not be here. Because Jesus Christ humbled himself as a servant of both the Jews and the Gentiles through his life, death, and resurrection. He, Jesus welcomed us into his family. And because he humbled himself, he was able to welcome us into his family. And so shouldn't we, shouldn't we who claim to love him and want to be like him, imitate him in this area as well? Shouldn't we want to accept one another despite our differences as well? If we are followers of Christ and we strive to do all that he's commanded us, then accepting or welcoming others warmly into our fellowship and our friendship is something that we should strive to do, that we should want to do, even if it's difficult, even if it's hard. The task, it is difficult. But Paul doesn't let us off the hook. In fact, he doubles down on it. And that brings us to the second motivation. If it wasn't enough that Jesus Christ... Uh, is uh, the prime example of how we are to love one another despite our differences. If that wasn't enough, Paul kind of doubles down. He gives us more evidence of why we should accept one another. That second motivation is that Scripture scripture anticipates our acceptance. Scripture anticipates our acceptance. Now, Paul has spent much of his attention during the last few chapters addressing the Gentile believers. And in this particular section, Paul is making it very clear to the Jewish Christians that they must welcome those Gentile believers into their fellowship and friendship as well. Uh, Just because they felt like they needed to continue to obey the law, it didn't give them the right to disfellowship with Gentile believers. And Paul emphasizes that with a string of Old Testament quotations to prove to them, to show them that God has always intended to unify the world in worship of him. He always intended to unify the world around the worship of him. And what we'll observe in the next few verses is that we have Old Testament quotes from every major section of the Old Testament scriptures. We have the law, we have the writings, and the prophets. All these quotes show us that God has always intended to save the Gentiles too. It wasn't just to save the Jews, but the the Gentiles as well. And so here in verse 9, we see a quotation from either 2 Samuel 22 or Psalm 18. They're both the same situation, just recorded in different places. Um, And uh, it says here, uh, Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Now, this psalm is a psalm of David. And um, David is recalling how God had delivered him from his enemies. And he... and. As he recalls how God has been faithful to deliver him from his enemies, namely King Saul and even some of the other surrounding uh, nations, David proclaims his worship of God. And he he, he lets it be known that he's going to give thanks to God among the nations. And he's going to sing praises to God's name while he does so. David wants the world to know 
God's ability to save. And in a similar way, the greater David, Jesus, Jesus proclaims God's ability to save the nations among the nations as he calls them to himself. Verse 10, verse 10 says this, Rejoice, uh, O Gentiles, with his people. This quotation is a partial quote from Deuteronomy 32 to 43. It's a song of Moses, but it's also a song that God communicates through Moses. And what Paul does here is he reminds us that just as God spoke through Moses, Jesus is also speaking these words. And uh, as, as he says, praise, uh, as he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Now, if you look at the full quote of Deuteronomy 32 to 43, you'll see that God is calling for the nations to rejoice because he is going to bring justice to all of Israel's enemies. And that might seem a little odd to us because it's Gentiles who are being saved, but there are also, but there are also some Gentiles who are being judged. And what we have to recognize here is that not every Gentile nation was an enemy of Israel. But even if that, uh, even if that was the case, God is still calling for all of the Gentiles to rejoice with Israel because God is going to be faithful to protect them, to protect Israel, and to avenge Israel. And it's, because, it's through his faithfulness to them, despite their failure, despite all of Israel's failure, that God ought to be praised. And God ought to be praised because when God shows his faithfulness, despite Israel's faithlessness, it shows us that when God says that he's going to save us, from our sins on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ alone, he actually means it. When God says that he will forgive us of all our sins, as long as we confess our sins and turn away from our sins, we know that he means it. That no matter how terrible we might feel on any given day, no matter how much we might feel like we've outsinned the grace of God, that God is actually faithful to forgive us of our sins. That he didn't mean, I'm only going to forgive you so long as you stay right with me. But he's forgiven us of all of our sins. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't need to continue to repent when we sin. But we recognize that when God says he will forgive all our sins, and that he will be faithful to forgive all our sins, he actually means it. When he says that he'll never lose those who are his, he actually means it. God's faithfulness to his people is a cause for rejoicing for both Israel and for those who have the privilege to share in Israel's blessings. Now, verse 11, it quotes Psalm 117.1, which reads this, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Now here we have a general call to the nations to praise God from the psalmist. All of the peoples of the earth are called to praise God. Now interestingly enough, Psalm 117 is a 
very short psalm. It only consists of two verses. And Paul uses only the first verse here. But the devout Jewish readers of Paul's letter would would recognize that the reason why the nations are called to praise the Lord is because of God's faithfulness. It's because it's it's done on the basis of God's loving kindness and the everlasting nature of his truth. Because of God's faithful love. Because of the fact that his truth is everlasting. All people are called to see his truth and to see his love and to respond in worship. Now finally, in verse 12, Paul quotes from Isaiah 11.10, which says this, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now, all of the Old Testament passages that Paul has quoted so far make it clear that there should have been an expectation that the Gentiles are included in God's salvation plan for all of mankind. Now, this final quote here from Isaiah, it solidifies this idea of Gentile salvation and inclusion in the kingdom of God as the root of Jesse rules. Now, the root of Jesse or the shoot of Jesse is a term that is used to describe the promised king who would come from David's family, David's line. Now, there were many descendants of David who became king of Israel or Judah, um, but there's only one. There is only one who can fulfill God's covenant promise to David, who will reign on the throne forever, and that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Now, we often think of Jesus as a conquering king who will come to judge, and that is true. He is coming to conquer. He is coming to judge. But after he deals with all unrighteousness and sin, his reign will be characterized by righteousness and peace. And it is for this reason that Paul emphasizes this part of Isaiah's prophecy. Messiah, he's going to come. He's going to reign and he will rule over all the Gentiles. But his rule will not be one where he rules like a despot. It won't necessarily be one where he imposes his rule on everyone. He's not going to abuse his power. He's not going to make the life of his subjects miserable. When Jesus reigns, he reigns righteously, which is why instead of despair, the Gentiles will hope in the one who rules over them. He's going to be our hope. Now, Paul, he took us through a few passages to prove that God's acceptance of Gentiles into his people was always a part of his plan. God himself gives us testimony of his own desire for the whole world to worship him. It wasn't going to be just for the Jews all uh, the whole time. He was going to allow for Gentiles to share in those blessings and promises. 
what Paul is trying to do here. His goal for his Gentile and Jewish audience is for them to understand that this has always been a part of God's plan. This is not some new teaching. And as a result, as a result, we who love God should accept one another without reservation, motivated by the example of Christ and motivated by the fact that God has always been working towards this. And as much as, as much as Paul agrees with the Gentiles' proper understanding that all the righteousness that we need has been accomplished by Christ and, and it doesn't require any further obedience to the laws, uh, of, of the Old Testament, he wants the Gentiles to be sensitive to their Jewish siblings in the faith, not acting in a manner that is offensive or stumbling for them, right? to come alongside them, to be patient with them, and to teach them what right doctrine says. But Paul also does not want the Jewish believers to look down upon the Gentile believers, he doesn't want them to say, well, you know, you, you're really only here because God, was, uh, God was, was just pitying you. And so you, know, you, you can come along, but this is really our stuff. Right? He doesn't want them to look down upon the Gentiles. He wants them to recognize that these Gentiles who God has, whom God has allowed to share in, in their blessings... They were always meant to share those same blessings. So neither group is allowed to exclude one another. But both groups are to remember Christ's acceptance of them and to accept the other group. And when we accept one another, right, we, we, might, not be, we might not be quibbling over whether uh, righteous, righteousness is um, accomplished by faith alone, or whether we have to observe dietary laws or, or Sabbath days or, or whatnot. We, we might not be quibbling over that. But all these other things that we might be fighting over, that we might be disagreeing over, all these things, they should not stand in the way of our fellowship with one another. God has saved us all so that we could be one in Christ, so that we together can glorify Him so that we can show the world the power of the gospel. And if that is the case, if that is the case, then when we accept one another, we have to do so genuinely. No more fake smiles. No more quick hellos and then jetting to another side of the room. No more internal thinking, I'm going to talk to these people, but I'm not going to talk to this one that I'm in conflict with. No more talking behind someone else's back and saying things that we wouldn't say to their face to other people. Our acceptance of one another has to be genuine. Bitterness has to be laid aside and repented of quickly. It has to be genuine. It has to be warm. Because this has always been a part of God's plan. 
And this is the unifying power of the gospel. It gets all the mess between us and God out of the way, but it also gets all the mess between one another out of the way so that we can be one in Christ. And as, as we see, unity in Christ doesn't mean that the church won't ever have conflict. There are going to be times where we're going to have conflicts over how to do certain things here at church or how we might apply the principles of scriptures to our lives. And that's okay. That's okay. there's room for for flexibility in certain aspects of the Christian faith for some disagreement. One commentator noted that Paul's teaching allowed for this kind of flexibility for those aspects of the faith, which were matters that were neither required of Christians nor prohibited by Christians. In other words, Paul allows for Christians to differ in what we would call gray areas. We can be flexible when it comes to who to vote for, what kind of schooling you'll choose, whether or not uh, you uh, want to come back to church if we reopen. And there's flexibility in all, all those kind of things. However, where Paul does not allow for flexibility is in matters that are related to the gospel. Paul's writings show that if there was anything that threatened the right teaching of the gospel, he was going to vigorously defend the gospel. There's no flexibility when it comes to the salvation message of the gospel, because if you get the gospel wrong, you don't have salvation. So Paul's firm defense of the truth is not unloving or ungracious. Because if the foundation of the Christian faith is compromised, then acceptance of one another doesn't matter. Because that acceptance would actually promote a false assurance of salvation, where salvation maybe should not be readily assured. So that's why Paul was so firm on the gospel. But for for, for these other matters that were not gospel issues... Paul says, no, be flexible, right? Accept one another. Overlook these differences. Overlook these differences. Still consider the other person your sibling. Love them. Right? We might not agree in terms of what we should do, but love them anyway. Right? It's that, that common phrase, agree to disagree. But it doesn't mean that you stand in a huff on one side. And you're like, okay, we'll agree. <laughs> I don't like you. Right? No. Or to still, even though we might disagree, respect one another, love one another, care for one another. Acceptance of one another is contingent upon the correct gospel being believed. And if we recognize that even if we might disagree on certain things of how the church should function or how the church should practice our faith, if we believe the same gospel then charitable and respectful disagreement can occur. It can occur, so long as it doesn't affect our fellowship. And that means, brothers and sisters, that we have to guard our hearts against bitterness. We have to guard our minds from being overly critical. And this is the big one. We have to guard our tongues 
from evil speech, from critical speech about one another to others. No more underhanded comments. No more veiled shots at one another. We have to remember Christ's acceptance of us. And we have to be determined to think well of others, even if we think they're wrong. The correct response to disagreement is not is not name calling. It's not scolding. It's not arguing. It's not quiet resentment. Right? It's not. I'm going to take my my ball home. We want to accept one another. Right? We we want to seek to put on love in our responses. Don't run away from conflict anymore, brothers and sisters. Don't run away. Our tendency is to run away, is it not? You know, we hate drama. We don't want to cause any more problems. And so we tend to internalize our feelings. And, and we let it build up to the point where, uh, up until the point we, where we can't deal with it anymore. And then it all comes out. Brothers and sisters, stop running away. Stop running away from conflict. Deal with, the own, with your own sin in your heart. And then let's lovingly speak to one another. Let's try and resolve that conflict. Let's try and be at peace as God calls us to be at peace. To accept one another well. With love. Not to let these conflicts get in the way. Not to have a list of people in the back of your mind where you're thinking... I know I'm called to love them, but I don't really like them. So I'll be nice, but I won't like them. Don't excuse yourself anymore, brothers and sisters, because God doesn't excuse you. God doesn't excuse you for that. And think about it. Will God be pleased in the way that I handle this conflict? Will God be pleased in the way that I try and, and welcome this brother or sister into my life if my heart's not fully in it? I'm telling you right now. Now that stings me too. I feel that too. I feel that the weight of that sentence too. Because I know, as a sinful human being, that there are times where I'm not always wanting to have that warm fellowship and friendship with those I disagree with. But, brothers and sisters, we have to repent of that. There's no excuse. Christ did not die so that we could, uh, so that so that we could love our sin, shelter it, nurse it, comfort it, and be like, "Oh, it's okay for me to be mad at this person." No, it's not. No, it's not, brothers and sisters. We are called to so much more. We want to put on love in our responses. We want to remember that even if we disagree, that Romans fifteen one to two reminds us that we're to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. We're to please our neighbor for their edification. And if our brother or sister is erring in their thinking or perhaps are just misguided, we strive not to treat them like an enemy, but to, or, or to, we strive not to beat them into submission, which, by the way, doesn't work. But we strive to edify them with the truth of God so that they may have a more accurate understanding of God and His desires for us. 
Because Paul is calling believers not to sin in our disagreeing, that means we have to learn how to deal with our disagreements in a godly way. We are going to disagree with people at times. But we want to make sure that we remember that the person we are disagreeing with is a fellow brother or sister in Christ. They are co-heirs with us in Christ, whom God also saved from all their sins. And if that's the case, then the way that we disagree with fellow Christians in the church, it's got to look different than how the world disagrees with one another. If accepting others we disagree with into our fellowship and friendship sounds difficult to do, you are absolutely right. It is hard. It's hard to do from a human perspective, but it is not impossible to do when we understand God's provision for our lives. God does not call us to obey Him without providing the means and ability to do so. If we believe that God's word is powerful and that it can affect our lives, then we cannot have this mindset of we can't do what God wants us to do. His word is sufficient. And that brings us to the third motivation to accept one another, which is that God himself empowers our acceptance. God empowers our acceptance. Verse 13. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul ends this, this, uh, this section of instruction on how the church ought to get along with, with one another with a prayer. A prayer to God on behalf of the Roman believers. And, and what he wants us to recognize is that the hope of salvation for all people is found in none other than God himself. And that same hope that the Jews have for salvation from their sins is the same hope that the Gentiles have for salvation for their sins. And so, in a similar manner, the the hope that we have of salvation from our sins is that very same hope. It all comes from God. God truly is the God of hope. And as a result, because of this shared hope that we have with those that we disagree with, Paul is asking that we would not focus on our disagreement, but that we would remember the hope that he has given us. That we would be filled with joy and peace in believing that we would remember our salvation and the hope that we have because of it, and we would be filled with joy and peace. In Galatians 5, we see joy and peace included in that list of the fruit of the Spirit. This characterizes those who are Christians. And this is the exact opposite of the deeds of the flesh. There are a lot of deeds of the flesh, but uh, the ones that are opposite joy and peace are anger, Disputes, dissensions, and factions. Paul's prayer in Romans 15 is that these disagreeing believers would demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit towards one another in spite of their disagreement. Now, why does Paul pray this prayer request for these believers? Why does he want them to be filled with joy and peace? It's so that they would abound in hope. For us to all focus on the hope that comes from God himself through the Holy Spirit. It is hard to live as Christians in this world. 
right? Because our, our hearts and minds are wired to respond to life circumstances according to our old sin nature. But Paul's prayer reminds us that it is God's will and pleasure to fill his people with hope. The hope of salvation, the hope of, of, of being like Christ through the Holy Spirit so that we can live in a manner that is pleasing to him. God asks us to be like Christ, but he himself is the one who gives us what we need to be like Christ. He commands us to be like Christ, and he says, here are the tools that you need to to be like my son. Here is the power that you need to be like my son. Use them. And and through that, be like my son. God himself empowers us to do what is right. He empowers us to accept one another when we are filled with hope. When we are filled with gospel hope, we are filled with confidence that the scriptures work. That is when we are able to work on that sin, that little nagging sin that is in our lives, and turn it around, repent of it, and do the exact opposite that our sin wants us to do. That's how we are able to accept one another. And that is a motivation for us too, right? If God is the one who empowers us to do so, If he's not asking us to do the impossible, but he's saying, here is everything that you need so that you can do what I ask you to do, shouldn't we be willing to do so? Intellectually, we will say yes, right? Intellectually, we would say, yeah, sure, of course I can do that. And and that leads us to, to ask ourselves, do we practically live as if we're willing to do what God empowers us to do. Do we live like this is true? Or do we pray for God's grace so that we can respond in a Christ-honoring way to those that we may be disagreeing with in life? Do we seek out the truth of Scripture to instruct our minds so that we can correct any wrong thinking we might have? Whether it's about doctrine or preferences. And even the wrong thinking that we might have about handling conflict. Especially since so many of us, we would rather run away from conflict rather than embracing conflict and using it to bring both of us uh, together in Christ-likeness. So that we can both edify one another. Do we believe that God has provided us the means by which we can grow and change, and do we strive to actually apply that knowledge so we can grow and change? That's another thing that we need to do too. Right? If we truly believe that God is with us, that He empowers us through the Holy Spirit to do what is right, to accept one another despite our differences, then we have to do so much more than mentally acknowledge that God can change us. We must use the means by which God empowers us to grow and change to change. And through, and though that process to become more like Christ, though it might take a while, 
we are reminded in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And later in Philippians 2.12-13, Paul encourages the Philippians, telling them that God, he is working in us and with us so that we will please him. So we will be willing to will and work for God's good pleasure. God is with us and he is working so don't be discouraged, brothers and sisters, if we have conflict with one another. It's going to be hard work to resolve conflict in our lives and to, to confront one another in areas where we may be sinning. It's not, it's not easy. It's not always nice to try and, and come to agreement where there's disagreement. It's not always fun. It's hard work. It's emotionally draining. It takes time. But those aren't excuses that God says, oh, oh, it's, it's taking too much of your time? Oh, okay. Yeah, you're excused from being in your sin. Oh, it's too emotionally draining for you right now? Oh, okay. Well, you know, just, just leave it be. Don't exert yourself. You're all right. God doesn't do that for us. He doesn't give us any excuse. I know that might have sounded harsh and I'm not trying to, to kick at you and to, to make you feel really bad about it. But what, what, I want you to, what, what I want you to see is that, that God does not excuse our sin. Sure, He understands. Sure, He recognizes why it might be hard. But He doesn't leave us with excuses. He's not okay with our excuses, and we shouldn't be either. We shouldn't be either. The Lord who unifies us all in Christ is the one who will fill us with joy and with peace so that we can abound in hope. And in so doing, when we abound with hope, right, we spread that hope to others. If we stay in our conflicts, if we stay in our sin, we're not providing hope to others. We're not showing them that, that, that the God of hope actually can work in our lives. We're showing them the exact opposite. So let's abound in that hope that we can grow and change, that we can deal with disagreement in the church in a God-honoring way so that we can glorify God together with one voice so that the world can see God truly is worthy of all worship. He's worthy to be praised because he can deal with the sin that's in our heart and make us whole and make us holy and make us like Christ. We may live in tumultuous times right now. There are, there are just so many opportunities for godly Christians to disagree with one another. As a respected Christian author has said in recent days, this pandemic has been a pressure cooker for many in our nation. It allows for the worst parts of our uh, of ourselves to reveal themselves more. 
And though Christians are certainly not immune from some of the debates that have surfaced in our nation, Paul has shown us that uh, from the example and purpose of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all who have experienced the hope of salvation from sin do not have to act like our world in disagreement. Instead of vicious words, instead of sarcastic dissent, those who have been redeemed by Christ, we are to accept one another. We're to embrace one another despite our differences. And this morning, we saw three motivations for us to accept one another as one in Christ despite our differences. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself, he exemplifies the acceptance that we ought to show one another. He did so through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And if he accepted us despite our helplessness, if he accepted us despite our our unworthiness, should we not accept one another? The scriptures also provide motivation for us to accept one another. They remind us that God has always intended to accept Gentiles into his promised people so that we could all be unified in our worship of Him. And not only that, but we are motivated to strive to accept one another because God Himself, He empowers our acceptance. Even though it might be difficult for us to always accept one another as Christ accepted us, the God of hope is the one who will be with us to help us live as Christians and abound in the hope of the gospel so that it spills out into every facet of our lives. As Christians who desire to glorify God in our unity, we are called to love one another genuinely. Genuine love for one another. Even if we do have legitimate disagreements, even if we do have, even if we do have legitimate hurts because of those disagreements, those disagreements, they might not disappear as we continue to live this life together here on earth. But those disagreements over non-gospel issues do not mean that we have to separate. And even if we don't separate, it doesn't mean that we just bury it, but we still allow for those feelings of, of, of anger to, to continue. Instead, instead of allowing for anger and bitterness to, to be the things that, that characterize our, our interactions with one another, even if it is secret and in our own hearts. We are to accept one another, welcome one another into fellowship and, and friendship to the glory of God. We're to love one another genuinely. Brothers and sisters, I know for some of you, this has probably been a difficult message to hear. It's been a difficult message to preach, to be honest, because I know that I have a lot of work to do too. Because what we heard from our Lord this morning, it's a very high calling from our Lord, is it not? It's a high calling for us because it's hard to do. But let us strive with our best effort and through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to meet that call because God empowers us to do that. No more excuses, brothers and sisters. Let's warmly accept one another. Let's meet that call. Let's glorify our God together. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for your word. Your word is powerful. Your word is impactful. 
Your word calls us to a higher standard of righteousness. And we know for many of us this morning, we might leave this message feeling a little beat up. And that's okay. We need, we need to hear that. We pray that, Lord, you would deal with us in our hearts, that you would help us to genuinely look within, to repent of any sin that we might have. And we pray that, Lord, you would help us to be restored to one another. So if that means that we need to call other people up and make things right, we pray that you would help us to have the courage to do so and and that you would help the other party, uh, whether they're also angry or whether they're even unaware uh, of any disagreement or, or tension or conflict, uh, to, to be w- ready and willing to, to, to talk and to be reconciled towards one another so that we can together glorify you. Father, we're grateful that you don't make us do this on our own, that you're with us, that you empower us, and we pray, Lord, for every measure of grace that we need to do so. We know that this is a hard task to do, a high calling that we have to meet. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to do so. Oh, God, we are so grateful for your grace. We are so undeserving. How you could have even looked at us in our helplessness and in our sin and chosen to, and chose to, to save us and forgive us when we weren't even there yet. Oh, Lord, what a hard thing. We, we couldn't even imagine that. But yet you chose to do that because you loved us. Help us to rejoice in that. Help us to abound in hope. Help us to be more like your son. We love you, Lord. We love you so much. And we pray that everything that we do would glorify you. Be with us this week as we wrestle with our own lives and strive to apply this uh, message to our lives so that you can be pleased and glorified. To your sons, then we pray. Amen.